it's not what you sell, it's what you collect. You can sign up a bunch of customers who are making monthly payments, but if you don't collect those payments because of failed credit card charges, you get a lot less money, and it has nothing to do with what you sold or how good your product was or any of the any of that other stuff. Better to get paid what you deserve so you can deliver what your customers ordered. I'm Robert Scroving. Our program today is all about decreasing involuntary churn, the term for failed charges and how to collect more of the money you've earned. My guest today is Paul Larson. He has more than 30 years of experience in the direct marketing industry. Prior to his consulting business, Mr. Larson was with a with was a a number of fulfillment and operations positions at Reader's Digest. You know, Reader's Digest you might think of as that little magazine on your grandmother's uh, you know, end table, but that was a $2.5 billion direct marketing business um, uh, under Mr. Larson's watch. And also, Mr. Larson ultimately honed his payment processing skills in his decade-long stint as director of operations for Senats Group, one of the world's largest magazine subscription companies that does uh, subscription marketing for companies like uh, Time, Condé, Nast, and Rodell. Paul is also past chairman of both Direct Response Forum and Payment Processors Association, presents regularly at conferences such as DRF, DMA, and Marketing Sherpa. It is a pleasure having you on the program today. I appreciate you, uh, Mr. Larson. Thanks you for joining us. Thank you, Robert. Thank you. Uh, you must have a longer memory than me. <laughs> uh, uh, thank you for sending me down memory lane. I appreciate that. Aww. Well, uh, now, one of the things I wanted to ask you about, and I think it's really important because it, because you know, this is one of the, you know, as, you know, you and I have known each other now for about five months, and, and as I've gotten to know you and uh, the companies that you've worked with and um, really understanding these challenges at, at a whole other level that, that, that I didn't understand before, um, you know, aren't uh, all merchant processing companies the same? I mean, they basically do the same thing. Should we just look for the cheapest, you know, get get our merchant services and then move on with our business? Why does it matter who we choose as a merchant processor? Uh, that's, that is a great question. Um, I would say that a merchant's choice of processor has always been important, but never as much as now because there's never been so much downward pressure on authorization rates as as there is now. We've always lived in a culture in which, you know, uh, credit limits, uh, you know, we're up against our credit limits, we were delinquent in payment, but we've never had so many cards being churned out, whether or not it's from huge breaches or from just generic lost and stolen situations to every card being reissued with a chip. Um, not to mention fraud and other things like that. Now, of course, that makes it even more important than ever for a merchant to align with a processor that actually can help deliver solutions which can reduce this payments friction. Um, of course, pricing uh, is important, but at the end of the day, as most companies now fully well know, 
that pales in comparison to the importance of performance over price. So obviously, if you can get them both together, that's great. But it's the processors, policies, procedures, and practices that will ultimately deliver the bottom line results that uh, can help a merchant succeed because of credit card processing, not despite it. Is it I mean, different merchant processors have different success rates? I mean, I figured if you process a card, if there's available credit, it's going to go through. Um, you know, how is it that some processors are able to get more approvals than others? And I guess some of this might be sitting here getting declines when it really has nothing to do with whether there's available credit, but only with our decision of who to use as our processor? Yeah. Well, believe it or not, the capabilities of processors vary widely, and that really is in large measure a result of uh, the methodologies that they've deployed that have been made available by the likes of Visa, MasterCard, American Express, and Discover to help overcome uh, this problem with churn. I mean, recognize, as, you, as everyone does, the fact that everyone in the revenue chain loses when uh, a membership or a subscription or a payment can't be captured um, when when everyone expected it to, right? When no one asked for a relationship to come to an end, um, but it does, right? That's, that's the definition of involuntary churn. Everyone loses, including the consumer, right? So over time, these card companies have developed um, policies and procedures that allow um, merchants uh, to overcome this churn, but those those tools and weapons that they make available, they make available through processors. And some processors concentrate on very simple transaction handling, point of sale, or one and done e-commerce transactions. And quite frankly, for those, um, you know, perhaps uh, cheapest is best, and there's not that much complexity, but where you need to continue to charge a card over time or you rely on a card on file a scenario to ease the way for, um, for, order, for ordering, uh, then selecting a payment processor is really important because some of them have really developed these tools and weapons to to reflect both an art and a science in accomplishing authorizations over time. Some of them kind of offer them at a cursory level without much uh, expertise on offer to the merchant for how to use them. And some of them don't even make these tools available at all. So the merchant is left high and dry with all of this um, you know, all these failed transactions, these, these imploded customer relationships. So it really is important to, to choose your processor wisely these days. I like that imploded customer relationship. relationships. Uh, great, uh, great term. Uh, right. One of the other things that really surprised me um, when, when uh, you and I have had the opportunity to talk is how different processors have uh, you know, maybe a, a not so good a reputation. And you as a merchant 
who, you know, you, through new, no fault of your own, just because you responded to an offer from a merchant processor who, you know, or the rep was nice enough and well, helpful enough, but as it turns out, they were with a processor that has a bad reputation, or maybe they put you with a processor that has a bad reputation, and that could impact your ability to get approvals and maybe on an ongoing basis even after you get a, another processor. Right, exactly. So you know, it's not personal when we talk about reputation here. And there is a need uh, perhaps for the kind of processor who is able to uh, transact on behalf of, say, high-risk merchants or high-chargeback merchants or, or merchants such as that. But to the extent that a, a merchant can see their way clear and would say to themselves, hey, we have a legitimate business here, um, but ultimately they, by, by, some, by some manner, they ended up with one of those processors that is known to be high risk. Well, Visa MasterCard knows that they're receiving a transaction from a high risk merchant, so they're just going to naturally raise the barrier to approval, and it's it's just um, it's protection, you know. They're just protecting themselves, and um, and so then the other thing that goes along with say a low reputation is. Uh, a lower utilization of those best practices. So it's about reputation. It's also about capabilities, right? So if you're if you're with a high risk uh, processor, you know you just care about being able to process cards. I mean, mm -hmm. theoretically, and you're not even you're not even close to getting down and dirty in deploying these really unique tactics that. Um, allow you to capture as many charges over time. Um, so those are those are rarely even built into, um, you know, th those arrows are rarely in the quiver of the more distressed oriented processors. Yeah, I mean they're they're kind of in the business of providing the service and um, uh, moving on. To the to the next client, and and you may not even realize. I mean, that's what's so shocking is, yeah. As a consumer, uh, you know, as a business owner, you're not really focused on it. You're thinking, okay, let me get this merchant processing done and move on. Uh, but you know, I've worked with quite a few clients that you know I've tried to help in this area, uh, even as with as limited knowledge as I've had. And they've gone with a processor, and then after they start generating sales, the processor kind of changes the deal on them. And, yeah, they, uh, right. And and, and uh, so it's you know you, you, a lot of these uh, pitches are not uh, what they come out to, and the fact that the the you, you are relying on your customer's credit card company to approve the transaction. And so when your processor brings forward your charge on your behalf and presents it to your customer's credit card company, they're seeing you as a merchant through the lens of your processor because the processor is the one bringing the charge. And if it's a high-risk processor or somebody that deals with a lot of fraud, um, that's going to trip off their, those algorithms 
and you could get a failed charge even though there's available credit um, on that card. Um, so, you know, just be, you know, yeah, you could try recharging or you could try some of those other things, but, uh, or contacting the customer and you could see how, how successful that is sometimes. You very often, you, you can't reach the customer. They're, they think they've gotten this taken care of and don't understand why you're having a problem. Um, and so, you know, it's amazing how this can impact uh, your business just because of your reputation or, you know, by virtue of who you do business with. One of the right, and it could be inadvertent. Yeah. It could be inadvertent, right? So none of this necessarily is purposely nefarious. But once you get into this conundrum, it's very hard to get out because you're not only losing sales, you're probably being faced with perhaps a chargeback situation. And you know the chargeback equation is derived from the number of charges you have in a month with the number of chargebacks you have in a month, right? And if those exceed one percent, you know that rate exceeds one percent, you can get in, into trouble. And what we try to tell merchants is that yes, controlling chargebacks is important, but the uh, but the sales side is also part of the equation. So one of the better ways to uh, achieve, um, you know, you know, making sure that you're not in any chargeback monitoring program is to increase your sales, right? And so the tools that we've talked about that the, the better processors have available, they're, they're available to help capture sales, right? And so those captured sales now, which are, uh, help supercharge your revenue and um, make your chargeback rates more manageable, right? So it all kind of works together. And it's it, 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 as you were saying, it's not just your your chargeback rates that affect it, but also your merchant processors' chargeback rates over all their clients. Uh, that also impacts they do. you. Mm -hmm. um, what if you? I've heard you recommend merchants encourage their members to use their Discover card. Why is that? Well, it's pretty simple. Um, Discover cards churn the least of all the major card types. So it actually, even though it may be thought of as kind of a, a downscale, very pedestrian payment method, it's a very powerful payment method for memberships and recurring billing because when you think about it, it's probably happened to you, Robert. I mean, the worst thing that ever happens to a Discover card is that it enters the recesses of one's wallet as a fail-safe, you know, and a backup. Um, it never gets – who shuts down their Discover card, right? No one right. does. There's no reason to. It's There's no cost to it. Um, so except for lost and stolen situations – Discover cards are, you know, rarely shut down and therefore, you know, a very solid payment method. That's we're just saying it's a it's a solid payment method for for recurring billing. And uh, and also, you know, the uh, usually well, I mean, so there's some customers who use the Discover card as their primary card. I know with my daughter, mm -hmm. she's 21 years mm -hmm. old, and right. uh, you know. Visa would not give her a card. You know, she couldn't find a bank that would issue her a Visa or a MasterCard, but she was able to get a Discover. And, and uh, now that she's had it for about, th I guess about seven or eight months, 
now she's getting offers from Chase and uh, the rest of them. So uh, it's a great entry level. But then, as you say, that card sits around and they don't issue the cards as often. They're not lost as often. Uh, and uh, there, it's a, it's a, I never thought of it until you mentioned it. But um, yeah, heck, you know, as a as a membership marketer, you may want to give members an incentive to use their to pull out find that discover card and use it uh, versus some of those other options. Just because um, you know the the acceptance rate you know of the charge is higher, um, you know, so you're you're not going to get as many declines on a discover because. Um, I think that you have also seen statistics that you've published on a presentation how the Discover card gets um, accepted off, you know, the, the acceptance rate or the decline rate is lower than even American Express. It can. I mean, it depends on the on the, um, on the merchant, but it, in, it it's right around approval rates uh, mimic. Amex uh, approval rates. So there's a there's a, and it's a low cost card. And when you think of we're talking about uh, churn, right? So we talk about it in terms of merchants whose subscribers perhaps churn either voluntarily or involuntarily. The consumers who have credit cards in their wallet, um, they they churn. Visas and Mastercards, like it's going out of style, right? Because they, you know, the the latest rewards card is appealing to them, and so they, you know, they trade in, or they, you know, United Airlines stops flying out of their city, so they shut down their United Airlines, you know, Visa card, and um, you know, and can you convert to uh, a Delta Sky Miles, you know, Amex card, but. Uh, discover cards are just kind of discover cards, right? Uh, they're they're you know they're money back, uh, modest money back, and no one volunt no very few people voluntarily churn their discover cards. How uh, anyway. you mentioned before uh, chips and the transition for, to chip cards? How has that impacted subscription decline rates? Uh, harshly. Uh, <laughs> uh, if every, I think about this, if every card in America is being reissued with chips and, and almost all of them with new expiry dates, if not new account numbers, then every subscription is at risk, mm -hmm. right? Because if every, you know, every card's got a new piece of information, the old legacy information's been switched out on which the, the last charge for that subscription took place or membership took place, now, mm, new card, uh, every subscription's at risk. So all, we've seen overall decline rates steadily rising over the past two years, again, in large part uh, because of this mass reissuance. Um, companies not with processors that have solutions to overcome this problem have felt involuntary churn triple in the past 18 wow. months. And, you know, we're not done yet because while most credit cards have been reissued with chips, that, that part is done. The credit card side has almost completely been reissued with chips. Still, Many hundreds of millions of debit cards are yet to be chipped. So 2017 
will be another year of potential hyper-churn because the debit card universe still needs to be reissued by and large with chips. Amazing. And um, you know, the, the thing of with you, when you have an expiring card, you have the date and year, and so you can be proactive about going out and contacting the customer in advance and advance of the failed charge and work to get that updated expiration date. But with a when the card's been replaced by a chip card, you have no idea as a merchant and, and don't know that there is a, a new card. Um, also, I've heard from you that um, you know, for you know whether the card is replaced because it's a chip or it's replaced because the the, you know, the it was lost or stolen, uh, there actually are updating services that that you can subscribe to as a merchant that would provide you with the updated credit card information for your customers when they get a new card. Is that true? That's true. That's true. And these services, by the way, are two decades old. They were originally, um, you know, this is how this is how long uh, uh, the tale has been for subscription growth, right? So subscription growth began 20 years ago, and it was at that point in time that uh, the major issuers at Visa and MasterCard, you know, Citibank's Chase as well as Fargo's, Bank of America's, said, listen, why, why should we allow uh, these subscriptions to end? Neither party asked for them to end. The, the, yes, we're reissuing a card, maybe it was lost or stolen, whatever, but the truth of the matter is the same customer, it's the same underlying account, it's just the numbers changed. So as a, it was originally uh, positioned as a courtesy to consumers to create a database um, into which uh, updated information could be loaded. Uh, and then merchants, through their processors, could query um, these databases to get the fresh information and overcome uh, in large part, the churn caused by this reissuance. So, therefore, Visa, MasterCard, and Discover do have robust databases that um, merchants uh, can take advantage of if their processor um, offers that service. Um, and but I could tell you that these services have been a lifesaver for many merchants throughout the this period of great volatility. And, you know, the period of great volatility has been about four years now because even before the chips, there were the massive breaches at Target and, and Home Depot. So, you know, those two breaches alone caused 110 million credit cards to uh, be reissued. Plus, you know, we're all losing <laughs> losing our credit cards, it seems, at least once a year, right? And when I sit with a when I sit with a merchant and the group of people associated with the payment process, and when I go, I visited a company in Atlanta last week, and there were six of us sitting around the table, and you know, invariably, every one of them had one, two, or three cards reissued within the last year, which again is potential death to subscription and membership merchants. So. Being able to tap into these account updated services is um, 
is really essential. Well, and, and just yesterday, I received two new cards, uh, mm-hmm. both a personal card and a business card, because my Amazon Prime account got hacked. Uh, somebody had you know gotten access and, and made uh, per- unauthorized purchases and had goods shipped to you know, New Jersey of all places. I guess probably as a New Yorker, Paul, it wouldn't be surprising to you that you know these this thief ended up being in New Jersey. Um, but um, the uh, <laughs> sorry about that. But uh, the uh, but the the. But I had to get new cards issued. So the many subscriptions I have for the uh, the SaaS, you know, that I have the the little uh, the customer service system, the CRM, the the newsletters, the subscriptions, the coaching pro, all of that is now going to have to be changed. And for the ones that get updated automatically, I don't have to do anything. Uh, for right. the 90% that aren't with a merchant processor, uh, you know, either they're going to end, or I'm going to have to proactively uh, go change my and update my information so that I can maintain those services. So it it is quite a hassle uh, for the consumer, and uh, a lot of times you're not going to make the cut on the second time around uh, when it comes to um, comes to going out there and uh, and and getting that done. Not uh, only that, but even think about you now, Bob. You're in a position to actually potentially select which subscriptions you now want to allow to die, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, you you may have had a, a service that was just – you just never got around. You, you didn't use it, but you just never got around to making the call to mm-hmm. end the service and you paid – $20 a year or $10 a month, and you just not you never got around to it. Now you could proactively say, guess what? I'm not going to retie this back to uh, to this new card that I got, and uh, that will implode unless, of course, that merchant, you know, participates in the account updater in which you're – you're stuck with them for a little while longer until you, <laughs> well, until you finally do pick up the phone and perform voluntary churn. Well, there's probably, I don't know, something in the neighborhood of 2500 to $3,000 worth of recurring charges on my credit card. And most hmm. of them, you know, my assistant, she, you know, she goes through and, and assigns those on my, you know, she, she looks at the statement and, and recognizes mm-hmm. those because they've been on the statement for the last several months and all those are kind of at the top, and I don't really look at them at a monthly basis. What she, what she highlights for me are the three, four, or ten that maybe I haven't gotten her the receipt yet, or you know she doesn't you know recognize and hasn't been she hasn't been able to code it proper you know properly. Right. And so mm-hmm. she's only bringing to my attention on a monthly basis the the handful of charges that she doesn't recognize. Everything else is kind of in the subconscious and it's just pre-approved. Whereas right. now I'm going to go, I have to wade back through every single one of those recurring charges and as you say I get to make a choice of uh whether or not you know there'll be winners and losers. I'm, there's already one that I've made the choice that, oh, yeah, that's right. I forgot I was paying $119 a month for that. Um, let me go ahead and, um, you know, put in the process to 
to change. It's a SaaS service, and I'm going to put in the process to change it. I've been a customer, I don't know, six years. Um, but it's like, oh, yeah, I don't really use that anymore. Um, and uh, and so, yeah, that's one of if like you're saying, those account updater, it, uh, it's able to stay. Uh, you, 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 you don't have that same day of reckoning. Uh, one one of the other things that um, I, I, I noticed in one of your presentations was about uh, prepaid cards. You know, savvy customers are increasingly using these free trial offers where there's little opportunity for the cards to go through for a full purchase or the or for the ongoing subscription. Is there anything a merchant can do about these prepaid cards? Well, you're certainly correct that it is a big challenge and potential problem for subscription merchants. Uh, fraudsters endeavor to game the system using prepaid cards, copying product through free trials and uh, low-cost intro offers. They love those low-cost intro offers. Um, um, but here's the thing. Again, here's where a processor makes a big difference. Uh, if you integrate with a best-in-class processor, you can either have them filter out those uh, prepaid cards for you or take advantage of what they call enhanced authorizations, which uh, provide indicators that tell you that the card is a non-reloadable prepaid card. So you could deal uh, with it uh, right up front. So again, the best of the processors not only offer account updater and other services, they've They've created a much more a much more useful and robust decline. Re, I mean, not uh, authorization response, right? Uh, it also includes, you know, uh, country of issuance of the card. Um, again, if it's a, a non-reloadable prepaid card, and if it's a non-reloadable prepaid card, how much balance is actually on that card? Mm. So, you know, knowledge is power, and so. Uh, if you have this kind of uh, knowledge as you're engaging the customer, um, you have a better chance of not being fleeced. So it, yeah, you, you have one of these yeah. uh, offers where it's oh it, it's free for a week and then we're going to charge your card two hundred and fifty dollars. Well, essentially the free for a week when they use the prepaid card, even if it's a buck or four fifty or whatever you're getting means free forever because the card's not going to go through when you try to charge your your you know the regular the regular amount so uh better to know that up front if you're using some sort of free trial or a low cost introductory offer uh that you know who you're you know who you're dealing with so that you can save yourself fulfillment because it's not really a sale it's just somebody trying to take advantage of you yeah i mean Obviously, there are some folks who, even after all these years, don't know the difference between Visa and MasterCard, don't know the difference between credit and debit, don't even understand what a prepaid card is, and yet they use it. I mean, we know that there's consumer ignorance out there. But where it really becomes a problem is uh, when it's obvious that, you know, that fraudsters can really uh, make a killing. If, you know, you have a lot of, um, services, box services today in which you can, you, you can try, you, you can have four or five boxes sent to you a month of which you only have to choose one, right? So if, if a, 
if that happens, you know, you could use a prepaid card, you know, for kind of the the pre-auth of 20 bucks or 30 bucks, and meanwhile the consumer is going to get five boxes of garments of which they're going to select one, two, or three. But hey, you know, they could have gotten all that for 20 bucks. Or you know, think about the old model, you know, of of um, you know DVD clubs and you know where you get you know the intro offer is four blu-ray dvds for 798 shipping and handling right so somebody goes and you know buys a ten dollar prepaid card uh, gets four you know blu-ray dvds for 795 uh, with a commitment uh to purchase one a month for the next year but guess what they use the prepaid card so there's not going to be any funds left on that card when the when the next monthly uh, charge is made, so the these folks would have gotten you know four brand new high quality Blu-ray DVDs for seven ninety five. <laughs> and um, we've seen a lot of we've seen some merchants who were not protected with these enhanced authorizations uh, incur you know fifteen to twenty five percent of their starts. Their subscription starts on on prepaid. Uh, wow. So the be, the the best processes knew this was going to be a problem and and quickly worked with Visa Mastercard to create this um, enhanced authorization that gives you a lot more information to be able to make a decision about whether or not you want to proceed with the sale or not. Um, it's, an, it's an amazing number. Um, so while a lot of client, a lot of customers don't understand the difference between Visa or MasterCard, there are those that have certainly educated themselves about how to get uh, goods at, the, for cheap, and uh, you know, they're certainly going to. You know, there's some number of your your churn that is due to this, whether you know it or not. Um, what about international customers? It certainly seems like there's a higher decline rate um, when those credit cards are international. Is that true? Yeah, well, it depends. So it all is kind of depends, depends, depends. I mean, if you're an American company uh, selling cross-border or people from outside the border are buying your stuff, well, your auth rates will surely be lower than than here in the U.S. with the U.S. card and vice versa. I mean, some foreign banks simply uh, have a higher threshold for approvals uh, for American companies than for local ones. And what ends up happening is that many American companies end up establishing local corporate presence in places where they either do or intend to do serious non-U.S business and are able, therefore, to have their transactions presented for authorization as an in-country corporation and achieve then, you know, higher approval rates. But it takes some time to get there and the cost of doing business cross-border is, you know, lower auth rates, but at least you get a sense of how, you know, how appealing your products are or your services are cross-border, and then that can drive you to make the next decision about whether or not to establish local presence, you know, somewhere outside 
the U.S. and then, you know, charge in local currency as a foreign company at the foreign bank and get uh, lower fees and higher approval rates. Uh, that sounds like it could be very expensive. Um, is there is there kind of a like a, a threshold or something that that you should kind of look at or where you go? Okay, I don't have to really worry about that until I get to to this this level of business in a particular country. Uh, not really. I mean, every every company kind of has a potentially has a, a sense of what uh, how, how well their service might uh, you know go over in, in, a, in another company I mean the good news is that um, there's a very minimal um, requirement for domicility any anywhere else and that's just uh, you know the smallest of offices with you know one person on the payroll so again if you're a small company that can be uh, high overhead but no I mean it's it isn't I mean you see most companies I think uh, content to uh, act in a cross-border way until they see that a particular market uh, can yield a few million dollars worth of revenue, I would say. Okay, and, uh, and and it doesn't really have to be that big. I, you know, uh, I've got friends that have or friends and clients that have uh, several of these cross-border, um, you know, they're, they're, or they're where they're establishing uh, domicile in several different countries because of the number of clients that they're that they're working with. It, and right. it can have, you know, not only, you know, the, it, the, the impact isn't only on the um, on, on the approval rates, but when you're selling in the uh, local currency uh, with a local presence, um, it it can improve your sales quite a bit. Um, it's it's really wonderful exactly. being in the USA and having customers. I mean, I've got clients in. Germany and UK and Australia and a couple others I can't even think of at the moment but the and, and, and I certainly love those clients but what I see when folks actually establish domicile in one of these countries if they're a USA based and they you know as nice as it is to have people sending the money you often see sales increase quite a bit uh, by having a local presence um, in, in one of those countries. So it's, it, it, even if it doesn't seem like it's really all that helpful at the moment, once you establish presence, you can find that uh, there was an untapped opportunity that you didn't even know was there, uh, that customers are willing to do business in their local currency when they weren't interested in buying from you in dollars. Uh, yeah, because uh, there's, pre there's premium, there's surcharges on you as a merchant for cross-border. The fees themselves are higher. The approval rates are a little lower, and and the consumer themselves uh, from overseas usually gets dinged with uh, their own kind of uh, upcharge for uh, buying cross border. So, you know, there's lots of there's lots of um, niggling problems that end up getting solved 
when someone uh, is able to establish local presence? Most of um, you know, a lot of the clients that I work with, you know, they, when they open up a new merchant account or a new gateway, there's you know by default there's all these fraud protections that are turned on and checks and things that there are being verified. And I've had a number of clients that shut all that off uh, because they don't they want to get as many of these charges approved as possible. And uh, you know they because their margins are so good, you know they're not as worried about uh, fraud as maybe somebody else. But what about fraud? What are what are some of the common sense things that that a merchant should do, even if they've got high margins, in order to protect themselves from um, you know, potential fraudsters that are out there trying to get their product for free or almost free. Yeah, so I would say that um, uh, CDV is an absolute must. It's the first line of defense, uh, first line of defense against fraud, and in fact, maybe the only thing that you actually have to implement in terms of fraud screening. Um, and as it turns out, um, you know. The tide has turned with CVV in that, you know, up until five years ago, you know, marketers hated to ask for extra information. Anything that required a reaching into the, into the wallet or an extra piece of data that needed to be entered by the, by the consumer, you know, it caused abandonment, right? But now I think it's pretty much proven that there's greater abandonment when CVV is not asked for, right? Because people know that this is an extra layer of security. People doing business on the web legitimately want that security. And most people know their CVV just as well as their, as their account number. And one thing we do know for sure that um, conversion and uh, lifetime value absolutely is greater with a CVV uh, customer, a customer that you brought in via CVV. But let me just say this. I, I know a company that's a, a, a national brand name that has resisted CVV. Um, and last week, um, <laughs> uh, in less than an hour, they had 17,000 fraudulent authorizations perpetrated by a bot, right? So someone bought a stolen list, loaded into uh, a system, and, start, and found an unprotected website, an, uh, unprotected by CVV, and just started spinning those stolen accounts. 17,000 in less than an hour. Um, obviously, this was from a list of stolen cards. And guess what? 700 of those 17,000 authorization attempts were actually approved. And now 700 consumers will see charges on their statements for something that they themselves never ordered. And many of them will charge back. So that's one ramification of fraud and not at least having that first line of defense against it. I mean, people can buy these lists of stolen cars with CVV, but it costs a lot more. So on the black market, um, you know, generally it's, it's a lot cheaper to just buy the stolen cards and find unprotected sites and just start spinning those numbers on that. And what happened to these guys is not an isolated case. See, here's the great irony. 
Bob. Even though it's always been generally believed that e-commerce is where the greatest fraud threat lies, the truth is that almost all of the noteworthy fraud that we've now come to know and hate has been perpetrated at retail point of sale. You know, TJ Maxx, Neiman Marcus, Target, Home Depot, you know, those last two, which were three years ago, broke the camel's back and forced us to follow the rest of the world and secure the point of sale with chips, right? We were the last country because we don't like to interfere with commerce. Chips take long. You've gone through that now at checkout. That takes longer. We don't like, we don't like longer. We want to sell and be done with it. Um, but now fraud really will move online. And it is moving online very rapidly. And merchants better have fraud screening either operable or at least ready to go. That's, that's all I can say. Because it's, it's going to be, you know, the, the fraudsters aren't going to go away. And if point of sale has been secured, they're just going to move online. When Canada moved to chips, um, you know, the rise in online fraud in Canada went up substantially and the same thing in the UK. And it's already being reported as greatly increasing here in the US as well. Well, it's interesting that client that had the, no CVV, they went on for years without any problems. And then lo and behold, one day, uh, 1,700 fraudulent transactions and 700 approvals, you know, it, I'm sure that totally disrupted their entire operation, uh, you know, may have jeopardized their relationship with their merchant processor, uh, and, you know, huge ramifications of, of what, it, what it did to their business, uh, even though they probably quickly identified that they were, they were uh, fraudulent charges. But now, of course, that person knows that those 700 cards are working and authorized and uh, will be able to use them in other situations. So it's Absolutely. That's right. And so this is an example of a company whose products and services you wouldn't steal, right? This, the sole purpose was to spin these, not 1,700, 17,000 17,000 auths, and out of the 17,000 auths, yes, now they're going to take those 700 and go use them to buy meaningful things uh, <laughs> online. And the big thing is, right, is that um, uh, not only, obviously, it's going to cost this merchant in terms of auth fees and ultimate chargebacks. You know, if this gets out there in the news mm. and in the press, then you know, their reputation uh, as a merchant will suffer and people will be more apprehensive about doing business with them on the web. Well, it wasn't that long ago, you know, 10 years ago, we were talking about customers being concerned about inputting their credit cards online. And now that pendulum has swung the other way where most client, most customers don't really think twice about it. But you know, so much of this fraud and stuff out there, it doesn't take too long before 
folks are apprehensive. I know my wife talks about she won't use her credit card at Target. Now, you know, there's probably no place more secure to use your credit right. card than Target right now. But, you know, right. because that's been splashed around the headlines, she won't go. You know, how many of your customers do you want to give a pause to within your industry? You know, you're probably not even that big, you know, that, you know, that you know, if your folks will remember if you're subject to one of these frauds and you've got to issue a letter to each and every single one of your customers uh, that their information has been compromised, um, you know, that's going to get press. People are going to know about it, and it's going to impact whether or not folks are willing to pull out their card going forward and uh, put it into your website. It's, you know, it can have huge ramifications, even though you could have gone for the last 10 years without a problem. doesn't mean you won't have one tomorrow. Right, and if you're not, if you're a merchant and you're purposely not collecting CVV, the message you're sending to Visa and Mastercard is either a, I don't care about security, b, I care a lot more about, you know, uh, stuffing my bottom line with sales than I do about, uh, you know, security. So uh, that's you know, a message that ultimately you don't want to send to them. And it's probably just a matter of time before it is fully mandated anyway. So time to get used to it. It gets back to that reputation thing. Um, how exactly. Is a, mm -hmm. How is a merchant um, – how can a merchant kind of get an understanding of what their processor's reputation might be uh, when they're trying to evaluate uh, who to work with? You know, right now, you know, pretty much you're just, you know, the only thing we have to look at are fees and discount rates and those sorts right. of things. How do you, how, how can somebody weigh in on reputation as in, the, in their decision criteria? Yeah. I mean, there are, there are events and then there are, um, there are then there are the kind of the right places to be where your industry peers are, right, uh, for your vertical or you know a large extent, say the membership or <clears throat> subscription vertical, payments oriented ones in which they can research and document the features and functionality that the industry standard bearers implement to deliver maximized bottom line results, right? So it's it's really it's like almost anything else. It's it's talking to the talking to the right people. Um, you know, you go to certain events uh, for entertainment, um, and the ones in which a tremendous amount of selling is being done. Look for the ones in which there's really not much selling being done, but there's a lot of education. We're talking direct response forum. We're talking subscription insider and places like that where um, sales, salesy stuff isn't even allowed, right? It's verboten, and and it's all about uh, networking with others in the industry, your peers, um, that, that's really the best place uh, to find those things out. And then once you kind of get a sense of the features and functionality that these guys utilize to help overcome churn, then you forge and sculpt that um, list into your business needs. And, and then you just kind of use it as the wedge to crack open the treasury of golden tools at a world-class payment processor and 
I'd like to remind merchants that you don't have to be in the top tier of your vertical to engage a world-class processor. Mm. You just have to know who they are, and then you know, then you just draft on the best practices that the next Netflix's dollar shaves and ancestries utilize. <laughs> That's a, that's that's a great great message and um, and what I found is that the that you know, when the processors really take all comers and you just fill out an application and your and your guy gets you you know merchant processing uh, you know if it's too easy then it it probably isn't a, a business that you want to do business with um, the best processors really want to underwrite who you are. They want to take a look at your sales pages. They want to look at, you know, have some sense of what your product is and, and really get an understanding of your business because before they stake their reputation on you as a merchant, they want to do their own due diligence and, and check you out. Those are the types of businesses that are merchant processors that you really want to do business with because they're the ones that are going to have a good reputation and thus have a higher approval rate uh, than those that uh, that aren't uh, doing that due diligence. And at the yeah. end, it, it's not what you sell; it's what you collect. Yeah, viewing this as a as a commodity or a client vendor relationship is a big mistake. This is truly has to be understood, and you have to really believe that uh, you've entered a partnership in which not only are they scoping you, you're scoping them for because ultimately you want to work together to uh, you know, incre create and increase the kind of sales that are um, you know, meaningful because, let's face it, the more sales that they end up processing on your behalf, the better it is for them as well. But of course, it needs to be, um, you know, it, need, it needs to be reputable. But I think that's a key element that's often overlooked, and that is that your processing relationship really needs to be viewed as a partnership. So, um, how do you? I, I understand that you uh, work with merchants in order to. Uh, help them with the best practices around their merchant services and also make sure that they are with the best processors and have all of these things in place. How do you work with merchants in order to make sure they have all these pieces in place? Right. Well, we don't want to assume anything. So in almost any engagement that we begin, uh, we, we inaugurate it with uh, an audit, right? So we want to audit what they do today, who they do it with, and how they do it. Um, we have no um, uh, relation, we have no financial relationship with any processor or any third party. We obviously need to be independent so that we can look our merchants in the eye and say, you know, this recommendation we're making to you for payment processing uh, is also going to result in us getting, you know, millions of dollars under the table. That's definitely uh, not what we do. So we do an audit, um, and then we assess their current degree of efficiency. Um, and then, you know, we kind of have a two-tiered approach to optimization. Here's what you can do right now with your in your current iteration with your 
current partners, your payment processors, to narrow the gap between where you are and 100%. Uh, but here's what a here's what um, here's what a blue sky 100% uh, scenario would look like and what you would need to be able to do to achieve that. It may or may not involve reconsidering your current partnerships. Uh, we know the conversions are hard, so we don't like to make life hard, but the truth of the matter is most of our merchants end up coming to us in some sort of disrepair that requires a combination of both uh, the picking of low-hanging fruit and the cultivating of more difficult ground in order to achieve uh, success. And when you know we're into quick victories, but m more long-term uh, success. Well, and, so, and you're looking at their re at their actual statements, their actual declines, looking at the decline mm -hmm. codes, re the yep. reason codes for those declines and are in a position to be able to you know show them that you know whether or not their declines are on average or on par with best practices or you know what what they can do with you know different like you say the up, updater services or other types of merchant processors and you know give them real numbers so that they can evaluate whether the return on that investment is there or not uh, from making those switches. So I think it's it's really neat if with what you do, there's real numbers um, be based on your experience and the processors that, that you work with. And, and uh, because you actually do this for a lot of different clients, certainly small publishers, but also much larger subscription companies as well. Correct. And so, I mean, we have a sense of how to weave a safety net of astute, you know, decline prevention and recovery tactics and practices uh, that uh, really uh, can capture uh, just about every uh, transaction that is capturable. Um, now, whether or not that can be done with the incumbents, uh, we try to make that happen if we possibly can, uh, but we want to get to the point where um, we're really more than just chipping away. We're making a huge difference in in recovery. So we want to be able to put our our customers in a position to uh, capture. Yeah, anywhere from 22 to 70 percent of that which would have otherwise declined. You know, that's that's our goal, right? So, and it's it's that wide in scope, depending on you know the merchant. We have a lot, you know, subscriptions are everywhere. They're in B2B, um, they're in B2C, they're high ticket, you know, low ticket. So if it's uh, you know if it's a a standard B2C Middle America file where the monthly charge is ten bucks, you know, believe it or not, you know, that's gonna that's gonna have a very high decline rate, but it's also gonna have a very high recovery rate after we've deployed our best practices of of you know incisive decline recycling and and uh, woven together with uh, account updater and stale expiration date optimization, um, and of course a, a a more B2C high demographic high ticket 
um, you know, uh, merchant, you know, the recovery is not going to be 66% or 70%, but it's going to be between 20 and 30%. So mm-hmm. we want to help weave uh, a safety net that can can have those kinds of results and almost always are able to do that. Well, Paul, I really appreciate you being on this uh, program today. I encourage everybody listening to check out uh, paullarsonconsulting.com. That's P-A-U-L-L-A-R-S-E-N-C-O-N-S-U-L-T-I-N-G.com, paullarsonconsulting.com. I work with uh, a lot of clients. I get to see their membership numbers when they come to me for an assessment and very often these declines um, that they're get seeing in a, in a month, if, you know, they're generating revenue of uh, even fifty or a hundred thousand dollars a month. You know, declines can be anywhere between five percent, eight percent, or even as high as ten percent. I've seen, um, you know, with at a hundred thousand dollars, if you're able to just cut that in half, heck, that's mm-hmm. four to five thousand dollars a month you can recover just because you got these uh, these best practices in place. And uh, there's really nobody who understands this process like Paul and his team. I encourage you to check out paullarsonconsulting.com. Uh, you know, check out those, uh, you know, see what the impact of those auto-updaters could be within your own program. See what uh, you could do with these declines, these stale uh, expiration dates. Um, a lot of these features can really help put more money in your bank account without having to spend more on marketing, without having to go get new customers. Uh, and the nice thing is, is that compounds every single month. So if you cut declines by, you know, you know, and save four thousand dollars this month, you also get those clients again next month. That's the joy of subscriptions. And so those those involuntary declines compound every single month, uh, and so it has a tremendous impact at the end of the year if you can uh, go ahead and take care of it. So check out paullarsonconsulting.com. And, Paul, I want to thank you so much for sharing um, you know, more than an hour uh, with our members. Uh, this has been a tremendous, uh, uh, insightful program about something such as credit card merchant services. So uh, thank you so much. You are a gentleman and expert at what you do. Pleasure was mine. Thank you very much for the opportunity.